So this day that we are celebrating today, the, the feast or the festival of the Ascension, is a day when we as Christians, a day that the church sets aside to really celebrate two realities, both true at the same time, both incredibly important. Reality number one that we are celebrating is that when Jesus ascended into heaven, reclaiming his rightful throne as the King of kings and Lord of lords, being completely glorified as not only true God, but also as true man in the same person, we are celebrating the reality that then in a sense, Christ's work is done. His work of redemption, his work of buying you and me back from our sins with his sacrificial death and the promise of, of giving to us eternal life through his resurrection. So on the ascension, we are celebrating this reality that his redemptive work is done, but at the same time, we're also celebrating the fact that in his ascension, his work is really, is really just beginning. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven and took that rightful throne as the king of heaven and earth, it's not as if he kicked his feet up and said, well, I'm done. Time to just wait until God sends me back to, to judge the heavens and the earth and bring those with me that God has called and, and send to hell those who are destined for eternal destruction. Like, that's not the way that it works. When Christ ascended, removing his visible presence from us, he promised that he is with us always to the very end of the age. And one of the things that he gave to us, as the people who make up his bride, the church, he gave to us a job. And that job is to spread the gospel. That job is to be his witnesses in the world, to preach the repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. And Jesus promises that as we endeavor on this work, that he is right there alongside aside that, blessing this work. And he makes us promises about this work, that this work will not fail that he will make sure that the gospel advances, that the kingdom moves forward, that the church grows until such a time when all of the saints that he has destined for election are actually saved, that they are actually brought to faith. So, so in Christ's ascension, we are also celebrating this fact that, that Christ's work is continuing and that he is continuing to build his church just as he promised. Right, so we know all of these promises that Jesus makes about the church. But if you take a look at the state of the church and the state of Christianity in, in America today recently, like, even if you don't know the statistical numbers, which we're going to talk about some in a sec, it just kind of takes a cursory look in our world to know that, that really the state of religion and of Christianity specifically is not in a real great place in our country. So I have some statistics in your service folder. They're labeled A, B, and C in the personal sermon notes. These Statistics came out in December of 2021, and they're from both Pew Research and from Gallup. So that first statistic in there, that uh, 1999, 70%, and 2021, 46%, any, any guesses as to what that might be? That is looking specifically at the state of religion, so not just Christianity, but the state of religion in our country. It shows that there is a 24% decline in those who claim membership in either a church or a synagogue or a mosque. So over the course of 22 years, people who claim membership has dropped drastically. 15%, that's staggering. Or 24%, excuse me, that's staggering. Next statistic. This is not looking at 22 years, but at just a short 10-year span. So 2011, you've got 78%, and then in 2021, you have 63%. Anybody know what that 15% drop represents? That's specific to Christianity. 
That's a drop in those who claim to be Christian within our country. 15% decline in those who claim to be Christian. Then the last statistic, the one that's labeled C, 2011, 16%, and 2021, 29%. That shows a 13% rise in those who claim to be nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, those who claim no religious affiliation at all. And that includes people like atheists and agnostics that are lumped into that group. 29% of our country claims to have no religious affiliation at all. So statistically speaking, not just religion is on a downward spiral, but by the numbers, things look pretty bleak, and Christianity is on a downward spiral. And if, st- if that is statistically true, as these polls show, and sometimes we're led to ask, well, if, if the church statistically is dying, if it's going to constantly be in decline, then what's the point of us keeping doing the work that Christ has called us to do? If things are just going to keep going to hell in a handbasket and things are just going to keep going downhill, then why should we keep on preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations if, if it's not going to work? Now, maybe for you, numbers don't really get you going. You don't really buy into statistics. Maybe you're one of the people who, like Mark Twain, said that statistics are, are the third of the great lies that are told in our world. So then let's make it personal. For every evangelism success story, for every soul that is one for the kingdom of God, maybe you were involved in it, I don't know, but for every success story, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of defeats, failures, losses. And you've probably experienced some of them. The declined personal invitations that you give, the, maybe the door that's been slammed in your face, or like me, you get a, you get a phone call from a very angry, angry lady. I've told some of you this story before, but this this story comes from the first year we were kind of pounding the pavement and trying to tell people about HLC. We hung a door hanger on this, this lady's door, and not long after, I get a, a phone call where for like 20 minutes, I was just berated up and down. And as I'm trying to explain what we're doing and, and trying to share Jesus with her, she eventually just says, well, you and your whole church can just go to hell. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but, but I've never had anybody like seriously, I mean, I've had somebody say that in a joke, but I've never had somebody seriously tell me, I wish that you were in the place of burning sulfur and fire. Like, that's defeating. Right? You've got the, the ways in which we are, are marginalized in everyday life because of what we believe and, and who we cling to. You've got, you've got those times where we, out of complete and utter love for the person that we're talking to and, and a desire that, that they be in eternal life with us, we speak the truth of God's word to them. And then they just toss it aside and they say, that's your truth and I, I just don't need to hear it. But even as a church, there are plenty of times where you spend a lot of time individually one-on-one with somebody where you, where you teach them and you counsel them and you love them and you love them and you love them only for them to ghost, ghost you, for them to disappear from your church. And, and sadly, this has happened where they just walk away from Christianity altogether. And all of those, those losses and those defeats that we face are incredibly personal and they, and they hurt deeply. And it just makes you wonder, what's the point? Because you get trampled enough, you get beat down enough, you lose enough, you get defeated enough, you kind of wonder if you should keep doing the thing Christ has commanded you to do. You ask, why should I go out into the world and preach repentance and and the forgiveness of sins to people if it's going to fall on deaf ears? If people just aren't going to listen, if they're going to reject it and throw it in my face, and I'm going to constantly lose, and we are going to constantly lose as a church, 
Sometimes it feels like as the church, defeat is just imminent and that nothing that we can do will change it. And then you, you mesh that, not only these personal hurts and experiences that we go through, these losses that we go through, but you mesh that together with what you see going on in, in the outside world where people have exchanged just basic truth that everybody knows. It's written on their hearts. They exchange basic truth for, for just subjective experience. And I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I feel like it. You've got people who, who exchange moral decency for indecency. You have love completely growing cold. You, you watch as Satan continues to get his claws into every facet of life and just rain hell down on, on communities like, like Texas, like the one in Texas where they... 19 kids and two adults were killed this past week. And at every turn, it seems like Satan is winning and Christ is losing his grip and we as the church and as disciples just can't do anything to move forward. And you wonder, what is the point? What is the point if, if defeat is imminent? There's actually a, a name for this attitude that I'm describing. And in fact, you if you pay close attention to the way in which some Christians talk, and this has been pretty prevalent for the last 20 years. This, is, this attitude is, is called a defeatist attitude. A defeatist attitude is one that expects, is resigned, and just accepts the fact that, that they lose. A defeatist attitude comes as a result of being in constant and negative situations all the time, right? To where you try to carry out your duty or responsibility, you try to succeed in life only to never, ever gain any ground. A, a defeatist attitude is one that expects loss, one that just thinks right away that they're going to lose so much so that they don't even start the task which, with which they've been assigned, right? It's like the runner who, who thinks that, is so convinced that they're going to lose the race that they don't even show up to the starting line to run. That's a defeatist attitude. And a defeatist attitude has no place in the life of a Christian and in the heart of the, the work and life of a church, because it is antithetical to everything that Christianity is, every truth that Christianity professes. Right? The ascended Jesus, the one in whom we cling to and profess faith in, he already conquered all of our enemies. Sin, death, Satan, already done. He's the victor. He was not defeated. And because he is the victor, he promises us victory by faith. Therefore, we aren't defeated either. And this same Jesus, he makes us promise after promise about the church. Promise after promise about the tools that he gives us to grow the church. The word and sacraments, he says there, they have a veracity and an efficacy that is unparalleled to anything else that we could use. He makes us this promise about the church that, that the church will endure. The church will endure until every last saint, every last saint comes to faith. And this Jesus has never yet made a promise that he hasn't made good on, that he hasn't yet fulfilled. So where in any of this is room for a defeatist attitude? There isn't. Because all of these promises and in Jesus, right, we, we profess faith in these things, in this one, in these promises. And, and yet when these promises don't quite match the reality that we end up seeing in the world, and especially in our own experience with our work within the church or our personal witnesses, it's pretty easy to let that defeatist attitude really, really take, a, take root in your heart. 
to just finally throw up your hands and say, well, defeat's imminent, and I don't know what else to do. Seven and a half months before Jesus ascended into heaven, he was having a pretty intimate conversation with his disciples. He asked his disciples, John, the apostle John being one of them, he says, who does the world say that I am? Of course, they respond. Well, some say Moses, some say Elijah, still others a prophet. And then Jesus turns the question around and says, who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes a very bold confession of faith. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's in light of that confession that Jesus makes one of the most profound promises about the church. He says, you are Peter, and on the rock of this confession, on the rock of this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That there is nothing Satan and sin and the world or anything else can do to stop the advancement of the kingdom and the building of Jesus' bride, the church, the gates of hell will not overcome it. So the disciples, they heard this promise. Then about six and a half months later, they watched Jesus die just as he promised. They watch him rise just as he promises. Forty days after Jesus rises from the dead, with everything they saw and that promise still fresh in their hearts, Jesus gives them a commission made in light of that promise and his death and resurrection. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in the world. You're going to be the ones who build this church that I promised you the gates of hell will not overcome you're going to go and build it, and this is how you're going to do it. You're going to do it by preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name. Then Jesus lifted up his hands, and he blessed them, and he was taken up before their very eyes. Like us, John had the promises. Like us, John had the truth about Jesus and about the church. He had the commission to go and spread the gospel, and, and he and the other disciples did for 60 years. 60 years, John was added as an evangelist. And sure, they saw plenty of success, but there were definitely, definitely moments of defeat. They were thrown out of cities, persecuted. I mean, they lived through one of the worst religious persecutions that history has ever seen under crazy Emperor Nero. John, the last of the living disciples, saw, all, saw or at least at the very least heard all of his friends, about all of his friends dying, being martyred for their faith. Stoned, burned alive, fed to lions, crucified upside down, all for bearing testimony for Jesus. And now, John, the, the apostle of love, the one whom Jesus loved, he's now in, in a prison exile on the island of Patmos. He's separated from his congregations in, in Ephesus. He's got no one to love. I mean, if there was anybody in the church who had, a, had some sort of a claim to have a defeatist attitude, I mean, John was it. I'm sure on that island of Patmos, he thought about the ascension. Thought about how Jesus lifted his hands and blessed them. The promise he made about the growth of the church and the advancement of the kingdom. The gates of hell won't overcome it. Thought about his commission to go and preach the gospel to as many people as he possibly could. But I'm sure he was also thinking about the defeat. About the loss. About how failure and defeat just seemed imminent. But then in the midst of, of being on that island and thinking through all of the things that he does, Jesus gives to John a vision, a vision that transports him from thinking about Christ's last day on earth to the last day of earth, when Christ returns in the same way that he left them. 
John sees heaven standing open and sees Christ as the rider on the white horse, a, a steed of valor and power. He sees Jesus' eyes as a blazing furnace, meaning that, that he can see absolutely everything all at once. He can see all of mankind's hearts, know their darkest secrets, know all of Satan's evil poise. He sees Christ wearing a robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. He sees him wearing a, a diadem of crowns, a, a sign of his royal and divine and universal power over absolutely everyone and everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He, he sees coming out of his mouth this sharp two-edged sword. He, he sees an iron scepter in his hands. He sees, he sees names. He sees that Jesus bears the names like faithful and true. That he's the one who makes good on every promise he made and everything he speaks is not only true, but it is truth. He sees that rider on the white horse bearing the name, the word of God. That he is the very manifestation of the heart of the Father and through him God reveals things about himself that, that we could never find on our own. He, he bears a name on his robe and on his thigh the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the divine and universal power over all things. But, but John also sees a name, a name that's written on him that no one else knows but Jesus himself. Meaning that there's a greatness and a splendor and things about Jesus that our feeble human minds and hearts just can't possibly fathom and they are, are wrapped up in the heart and will of God only to be revealed to us when we are in heaven. Do you know what? What John is seeing here, he is seeing a Christ that looks wholly different from the Christ he watched go up into heaven. What he's seeing is the Christ who is the mighty champion, the conquering king, the valiant hero. And John doesn't just see who this Christ is. He sees what this Christ does, that he judges and makes war with justice. That there is nothing unjust or untrue about the actions that the conquering king takes against his enemies. He sees that, that this Christ is leading the armies of heaven in his stead. And they are riding on white horses just like he is. They are wearing robes of fine linen, white and pure. These armies of heaven are loaded for bear. They are ready for war. And yet, how do their robes remain? Pure and clean. They aren't even called into battle because Christ is so powerful. It is Christ himself who is dipped in the blood of, whose robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies that, that these armies just get to stand and watch and cheer as the conquering king comes out victorious. He, John sees this Christ strike down all of his enemies time and time again with this sharp sword that comes out of his mouth and using this, this iron scepter to oppress all of his enemies in the way and in a worse way than all of our enemies have ever treated us. But then the last thing he sees is perhaps the most powerful and profound. He sees Jesus treading the wine press of the furious wrath of God Almighty. What John sees is judgment. What John sees is the finality of all of Jesus' enemies. He sees Jesus with his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies, continually trampling them down, exacting all of the wrath and the fury of God Almighty that he has at his disposal against everyone who has ever oppressed his people.
Anyone who has ever stood against the church, anyone who has tried to prevent the free flow of the gospel, who has followed Satan to the very end, Jesus crushes them. And he himself and he alone stains his robe with the blood of all of those enemies under his feet. And this is an incredible vision that John receives. Like, do you, do you really understand what John is seeing? Do you understand what John is showing us? He's showing us that the Jesus we follow, the Jesus who ascended into heaven and took the seat of God, the, the, his seat next to the, the right hand of God, that that Jesus is not some milk toast, namby-pamby puppet king. Right? He's not somebody who just sits up there in heaven with his feet kicked back, kind of powerless until God sends him out. What John shows us is, is really the answer to our defeatist attitude. And that answer is Christ. What John shows us is the Christ who is the conquering king who rides into battle and fights for his people. What John shows us is the valiant champion who gets vindication for his people, for every single one of us who has experienced evil and oppression and hardship because of the work we do as disciples, the work we do as, as part of Christ's bride, the church. This king of kings gets vindication for us. What John sees is victory, complete and total victory for all of us. Now, it's a natural question to wonder, why on the day we are celebrating Jesus' ascension into heaven where he disappears from our sight, why are we talking about something that's taking place on the last day? Why are we talking about Jesus conquering all of his enemies and his robes being dipped in blood? And why talk about all of that on, on the day of his ascension? I have three reasons. There are actually three promises, and they're all written in your service folders. They're all fill in the blanks. You can follow along the the first reason on a day like today that we look at something like this, this is the first promise, number one, that Christ, the ascended Savior, is still with you. Right? That the Jesus who ascended into heaven, removing his visible presence from you, he wants you to understand that he always has and he always will be with you, first and foremost in his word and sacrament where he makes you promise after promise, but but he's also with us in ways we cannot possibly fathom or understand that he is the ascended king who, who constantly is providing and protecting and preserving and watching over not only you, but the entirety of his church and all of that power that John sees on display, that John sees on display in Revelation is a power that Jesus is constantly using with you for your eternal good and your eternal benefit. So promise number one that John makes us through Revelation that Jesus makes us through revelation, that, that Christ, the ascended Savior, is still with you. Promise number two. Jesus promises that Christ, the ascended warrior, fights for you today. That Jesus, true God and true man in one person, the one who ascended and took his throne of glory, that Savior doesn't just fight for you on the last day that that Savior fights for you now, that that rider on the white horse whose name is faithful and true with eyes like a blazing furnace, whose robe is dipped in the blood of an, his enemies, who wields a sharp sword and an iron scepter, 
that Christ is fighting for you against your enemies now. He is fighting for his church. He is fighting for his gospel. He is fighting for all of those souls who have yet to be, be touched by the word of God. He is constantly fighting and constantly protecting and constantly preserving all of you with all of that power. It's promise number two. That Christ, your ascended warrior, fights for you today. Promise number three. Christ, the ascended king, is still, I'll replace that, is always victorious. Christ, the ascended king, is always victorious. I know we have victory promised for us on the last day. Christ assures us of it. We see it. In Revelation. But Jesus wants you to know that on this day that we celebrate the ascension, that that victory is just as true for you today as it will be on the last day. And he wants you to cling to that victory. Because no matter how bleak things look in this world, no matter how statistically in decline Christianity is or religion in general in America, which Jesus would, would be happy to see disappear, all of the other religions, but but no matter how bleak things look and, and how much the, the front line of the gospel seems pushed back and the kingdom of God seems stifled, Jesus wants you to hold on to this one thing, that he is victorious and that he will not let his church and his gospel go down in flames. He will ensure that it is always advancing, always winning people, always, always, always until the last day comes. And when you believe and trust in this promise, do you know what disappears? You know what gets swallowed up in that promise? Every ounce of a defeatist attitude that would exist in your heart. Every ounce of fear and rejection and loss that we might ever experience, it all gets swallowed up in the promise of Christ's victory. And when Christ, your ascended king, replaces a defeatist attitude in your heart with a perspective of victory, do you know what he enables you to do more fully and readily and passionately? To be the very thing that he's called us to be. To be his witnesses. To preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. Not worrying about defeat. Not worrying about whether we'll get rejected or not. Jesus promises those things. But in the end, we know that we are victorious because Christ is victorious. That even in the face of defeat, Christ's victory is sure. You know, when Luke records records his ascension account toward the end of, uh, of Luke 24 there, he, he tells us this beautiful little detail. He says, Christ lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. While he was blessing them. Jesus' hands were still up in blessing when he was ascending into heaven. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he never stopped blessing his disciples. His hands never once went down. And friends, as you, as you go home today, I want you to go home with, with this on your hearts. That Christ's hands will never drop. That Christ, your risen and ascended Lord, that conquering King, will never stop blessing you. He will never stop fighting for you. He will never stop waging war against your enemies and his enemies he will always fight for you and for his church and for his gospel. Even when defeat seems imminent, Christ is victorious. Trust that promise. Amen? Amen. Amen.